In regard to the word inerrancy, because it's been used differently by different traditions and differently in different times, uh, what's the what's the working definition that you folks have been having conversations around? I, I can't answer that in a single podcast. Welcome to Changing Faith, a podcast about faith that changes. I'm Mark Vaughn, and Leanne Vaughn joins me in hosting this podcast. This episode is part two of a two-part episode with Pastor Nathan Oates of Emmaus Church Community, which is located in Lincoln, California. In the first part, you heard about Nathan and myself growing up and changes in Nathan's faith through those years. In this part, we're going to hear more about what's on Nathan's heart in the here and now and what he has uh what he sees in the future, both in his ministry and in his church. I, I would expect that there's potential for there to be some, uh, maybe not complete freedom to just do anything mm-hmm. in, in one's church as a pastor in a particular denomination that that, that has a strong organization to it. Um, do you run into that being something you have to deal with, with, hey, I'd like to integrate this into our services Mm -hmm. and district superintendent or or Mm -hmm. somebody else saying, yeah, but, Mm -hmm. uh, and having to kind of work back and forth to. Yeah, I think there'd be the potential for that, but it hasn't been my experience because of this one fact, and this is so important. and And that is that the direction that our community is leaning is toward the the core convictions of the first Nazarene church. So there would be a heavier hand, a more controlling presence in the the leadership above me in the organization if, for instance, I was leaning away from what the Nazarene church started as. We're not. We're leaning towards Wesley. We're leaning towards sacramentalism. We're leaning towards social engagement. These are all these are all hallmarks of the first Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. This mission to alcoholics in Pasadena in 1895. So, uh, I think for that reason, Mark, when I started the church um, in 05 and was talking with my supervisor in 04, I was trying to paint a picture to see how far he would let me kind of lean towards the ancient. And I even said, I might wear a robe, you know? Um, and I could tell that I was, I was trying to sort of navigate like what would be perceived as that's too far, you know? Um, and there was just a remarkable confidence in placed in me and the ability for me to discern what was appropriately, um, what was appropriate agitation of the culture without maybe crossing a line and becoming, you know, trying to prove a point in a way that really wasn't effective. So, so decided not to wear a robe. I preach in a button up shirt, right? But we celebrate communion every week, mm-hmm. right? We use the, an abbreviated form of the uh, book of common prayer for the, our communion liturgy. No wine. No wine. See, and that's an issue of respect there. Uh, that's a, that's an example of where, yeah, I would probably, in if all things were considered equal. I, ideally. Ideally, because of the, the rich history in the Psalms, the symbolism in the Bible, the power of, um, of an other kind of experience, um, a more distinct kind of experience in, um, in receiving communion with with that kind of a punch, 
yeah, it'd be interesting. I think yeah. it would probably be, be preferable. But out of respect of two things, the uh, conviction of the denomination uh, about alcohol, which is obviously rooted, maybe not obviously, but is rooted socially in our initial engagement with alcoholics, mm-hmm. right? This is a mercy. This is a loving decision. And then secondly, uh, my my father and my primary mentor in life are alcoholics. So mm-hmm. um, I can appreciate and I've actually even had people, the several recovering alcoholics in our community, and uh, have had people come forward to receive communion and very kind of quietly say, is that real wine? Mm-hmm. Because it's for them, it's going to, it's right. going to be a problem. So, yeah. yeah, but that's a funny example, Mark of, yeah, that's probably an example of where I, um, am trying to respect a denomination issue there. The, the way you said that about, uh, ideally, oh. uh, we, we totally get that because, and you said something else about, um, how did you word it? About it being separate or unique or special? Yeah. I remember the first time I received communion at a yeah. non-Nazarene church and that, that alcoholic wine hits the back of my throat. And I remember thinking, well, that was surprising. And I also remember thinking, that's probably the way it should feel. Yeah. If you're receiving mm-hmm. the blood of Christ, this probably shouldn't feel like, you know, a snack. It should be different uh-huh. from anything else. Different than anything else. Outside mm-hmm. of that sacrament. Right. And well, not, not to say anything wrong about people who, uh, wine is a part of their life, but sure. in, in a healthy way, hopefully. Right. Uh, but for us, that's the only place that happens. Interesting. Yeah. See, mm-hmm. I think that would almost be ideal. In that terms is of the, right. Mm-hmm. When we're there, uh, participating in the Lord's blood and body, um, in a very sacramental setting. Right. And we taste something we, we just don't have anywhere else in our experience. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. It, there, there's something to that. And I, I, I totally get what you're saying yeah. when that ideal. Um, and I know some people will actually have the, the grape juice in a separate, container a separate vessel right for anyone who you know if that's an issue right um i don't know maybe that'll be in your future (laughs) maybe yeah we were part of a church in wheaton that did that um yeah as a accommodation for those who for whom the alcohol was an issue right is there anything else you want to add about your personal journey oh man that's probably not as exciting to others as it is to me right uh yeah, I think the, the kind of the 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 learning edge right now is around the um, around the practice of monastic living and um, the um, the historical practice of praying at various hours throughout the day of a of a life of extreme devotion. Not necessarily because I feel that's the only way to go in order to be an authentic Christian, but because I feel like their demonstration of devotion to Jesus is instructive to me. So that's, that's the, in the last decade or so been captivated by, uh, by Benedict, a sixth century Italian monk. And, um, a lot of, a lot of the areas of my growth recently have been in that, in that tradition, which has been a whole new exposure to the ancient and to Roman Catholic, um, theology, which has been beautiful. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. appreciated it. Mm-hmm. Well, a year ago, you had, you went on sabbatical mm-hmm. and tell us about that. What did you do during your sabbatical? Okay. Because that kind of played into a lot of. It did. Yeah. Mentioned. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We had a couple of weeks as a family in Rome and just kind of touring around in Florence and Rome. And then I spent three weeks living in a monastery at the, in the birthplace of St. Benedict's place called Norcia, Italy. 
and I was in a very conservative pre-Vatican II Latin Rite monastery. So this is like, in their view, as old and pure as it can get. Um, and ironically, in my mind, it was mostly young American men. It wasn't old Italian men. Yeah. And these were just some incredible guys who were really pursuing their, their love for Jesus. Um, so I was enabled, I was invited to participate with them in virtually every part of their experience. So we we're praying eight hours a day and observing silence. And I was working alongside them and I didn't sleep in the same room. Of course, I had uh, guest quarters and I didn't go to one mass that they would do. But hmm. other than that, I was able to participate with them. It was, it was a totally life-changing experience. It's amazing. There's something interesting to me. Uh, the Benedictine tradition, mm -hmm. like the Franciscan tradition, mm -hmm. predates the schism. Yep, you're right. So we're talking about uh, going back to uh, leaders in the church that were just as much a part of the Orthodox Church as the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, I guess in one sense. Yeah, there was some division about, you know, who was in charge. But um, you're right, it hadn't formally divided yet. I think the dominant dynamic behind Benedictine spirituality was the fall of Rome and the disintegration of the church. And that's part of why I'm fascinated by it, because Benedict articulates an, a response to a... Um, a less and less functional church, a more corrupt Christian, in quotes, um, message, and uh, a devastated culture with his monasteries. That's his, let's do it like this. I'm going to re-articulate what Christian life looks like in the form of these dedicated communities of 12 men, writes the rule to guide their life. And that I, I, there's, I mean, I could go on on this for a long time, but I feel like that's the parallel. That's the transferable principle, which I'm trying to access because I think that he identifies some of the same problems in sixth century Italy as exist in 21st century Northern California, hmm. specifically radical consumerism. And then he articulates a solution within a committed Christian community. So that's why... I'm captivated by this, by this man, because uh, I'm learning from him and I'm learning things that apply, not just from some sort of, oh, isn't that interesting, that ancient idea? No, this is not ancient. This is ancient, but it's also totally relevant. Yeah. So it is a very rich teaching mm -hmm. and tradition for those of us who find ourselves in the evangelical tradition of today in America, mm -hmm. but yet we're separated from it by the whole Reformation thing mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. separating ourselves from those messed up <laughs> yeah pre-15th century christians yeah right uh, there there there's this challenge that we see and i think you do too of mm -hmm. getting past the reformation mm -hmm. and uh, appreciating the richness of more than a millennium right of church that just it's not even in our church history it mm -hmm. sounds like you said that yourself about your, yeah. your own uh, spiritual development early on. Mm -hmm. Do yeah. you see that as something valuable for us to share with uh, the, the people in our churches, in our, our evangelical churches, to mm -hmm. introduce them to, hey, there's something that happened between the death of Christ <laughs> and 1000 AD. Yeah, yeah, or, or 1600 AD, or, yeah. Um, I do, and I think that 
that it needs to be done gracefully because the the um, tendency is to toss the baby out with the bathwater. And so then a bunch of things get associated under a convenient label, like communion is Catholic. No, communion is Christian, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, so it just takes time because people aren't trying to be, in my experience, people aren't trying to be divisive. They're trying to be clear. They're trying to find clarity. And if certain practices are only ever associated with certain traditions that are seen to be in some ways corrupt or misguided, then it's just simple to, it's just easier to, um, to cast those kinds of practices or perspectives out. So I think probably that's the, the part of, of uh, my formal education that I'm so grateful for, the most grateful for is just this, Hey, it's okay. Let's consider some other perspectives on this. Now, Wheaton and by no way, especially in the nineties was Wheaton. That's all right. A, um, like a pro Catholic community. They're pretty concerned about, um, about that distinction, but the general idea that was able to be uh, lived into at one level in that community has then just kind of, I've sort of feel like I've been able to extend that beyond and uh, have really appreciated um, friends and friendships from the Orthodox tradition, from the Roman Catholic tradition, from charismatic traditions within the Protestant tribe, bigger tribe. Um, Love what we're doing as a holiness tradition and the direction we're headed now. And even like all, all my best friends in college were five point Calvinists who are leading Presbyterian churches. And and I learned from them. I learned a ton from them as well. So hopefully, um, you know, hopefully each of us lands on some place of grace when it comes to the non-negotiables, right? Without so you, totally blowing out our convictions completely. So you maintain these relationships for sure. Good, mm-hmm. good, good. And then how do you, um, as a pastor, introduce your congregation to other aspects of the faith or other parts of the Christian community and world? Yeah, it's a great question. I use the phrase the historic church all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, If you hear me teach, I'll say historically or the historic church believed this. Now, some would say that was the Roman church, but that's one and the same for most of history. Or they would say, well, that's the Eastern church, the Byzantine church, whatever. Um, and, And that's one and the same. So I can get around that alarmist, hold on, hold on. I was told that wasn't okay. I can get around that by saying the historic church, for instance, would send people through often a full year of catechism to prepare for baptism, Hmm. you know? And, um, so I try to introduce, I'm not tricking people. I'm Mm -hmm. just trying to introduce concepts, practices, and convictions that are thoroughly Christian. And by thoroughly, I mean, Orthodox believe it, Roman Catholics believe it, Protestants believe it. We're all in agreement on certain things. Mm -hmm. So we can introduce those with a really deep sense of confidence as Christian and um, slowly, I think, and appropriately try to introduce, whether it's a conviction, a theological perspective, or just a practice like lighting a candle when you pray is something that we've introduced in our community. Mm -hmm. And I just have to do it in a way that I think answers the why question and doesn't just take for granted that it makes sense because it doesn't make sense. Icons don't make sense unless somebody can gracefully kind of teach you how to interact with them, but then they can be helpful. 
mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a process, but yeah. I, I'm totally intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to add about uh, either the direction you're going or mm-hmm. no, go ahead. So, yeah. uh, so I, I'd like to ask you, you're somewhat familiar with what's going on with the changing faith and the story of, of us mm-hmm. in, in generalities anyway. Uh, you've seen it from the outside. Are you seeing this as a phenomenon that's going on right now among people who grew up like we did in the church? Mm-hmm. Or is it just that I'm aware of it because I'm going through it right now and it's just something that's always going on? And- yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure, Mark. I Your notes mentioned the word fundamentalism and inerrancy. And initially, I don't associate with either of those two labels. So it made me wonder if, even though this is interesting, we literally were in the same youth group in the same church, if our experiences were different to the degree that that's what you're responding to. Whereas I would say, no, that was never, that was never even part of my um, conscious experience. And now looking back with a, a little bit more educated perspective, I would argue that wasn't even part of the experience. Hmm. Um, but, but that apparently isn't exactly your perspective. Right. I'm, I'm so, glad you said that. Um, yeah. The, the Nazarene church doesn't have those things in it. The manual doesn't have that in it. Correct. I think you're correct. Uh, but yet if you go into details about that with Christians in the rest of the evangelical world, they're mm-hmm. all over that. Mm-hmm. Um, all over what specifically do you mean? Inerrancy. I mean, they mm-hmm. have they have it in their church statements. Yes. Um, yeah. Fundamentalist type politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll use that as a political term in this. Okay. In this, yeah. For, for this discussion, and, and it's you know the people that we're rubbing shoulders with in our community who are mm-hmm. in all the churches that are otherwise similar, and the same churches that when people are leaving one church and going to another, these are the churches they're going to or coming from, back and forth mm-hmm. from from our Nazarene tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's around us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in our churches, um, both of ours, mm-hmm. um, even though that may not be the official teaching, may mm-hmm. not be in the manual. Right. Uh, we're still knee deep in it. Um, mm-hmm. You had many fellow uh, students and faculty at, at uh, Wheaton mm-hmm. who would identify that way. The, the colleges we attended, uh, it, it was around us to this day, our friends from family mm-hmm. and college would probably all take on those labels mm-hmm. I, or eh, I shouldn't say all, but when you say majority of them, probably, fam- I don't know if anyone enjoys from- being labeled a fundamentalist, but <laughs> <Not anymore. laughs> I don't think that that really has a but, positive uh, connotation but, to it, but, 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 but their, I, I but their politics would, would go right along with right. it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's where that comes from. I don't, and did that clear? Re- a little bit in regard to the word inerrancy, because it's been used differently by different traditions mm-hmm. and differently in different times. Uh, what's the, what's the working definition that you folks have been having conversations around? I'll let you answer that one. <laughs> I, I can't answer that in a single podcast. Okay. okay so it's pretty broad a- because some would say it, it refers to, um, the, the nature of the scriptures being inspired. Others would say it's more of a specific word for word jot and tittle. Um, there are no errors. There are no mathematical errors, scientific errors. 
errors in relation to um, the history of the creation, they would push it to that extreme, you know, or to that degree. So I just was curious. Right. Yeah. And, and, and our leaders would not have said that. Pastor Bonner would never have said that. Right. But yet everyone who sat under his teaching, an awful lot of them somehow get that impression. And I don't know where it's from. Maybe mm -hmm. it's from radio programs they listen to. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's from a church they attended before. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's from their friends on Facebook. Yeah. And our, our children attended a Christian college or a Christian um, elementary school from mm -hmm. kindergarten through eighth grade. And we're yeah. very much taught in their, in their classes that, yeah. you know, it's, it's a literal translation of the Bible. Yeah. You know, the God spoke, he pretty much dictated the Bible to yeah. the authors of the Bible. I and, see. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know that, that that's, that's out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that's helpful, and I, I mean, I know that it's out there and we, we encounter it when we're interviewing people who are in the process of becoming pastors. Mm. Um, we encounter all kinds of views of scripture and it's almost always a sticking point and a point where we need to clarify, uh, there, these views exist. These views have intellectual backing to a degree, but in our tradition, this is our view. Are you in line with that? Are you the right person to be a pastor within this context? So I understand that that totally exists. One of the things that can be helpful in that whole conversation is I, I think, um, is understanding why was scripture written in the first place? Like what is the ultimate purpose? And so if the pur purpose of scripture is to answer all questions about, uh, the timing of creation, then we got problems, right? Yeah. But if if it's not, if it's to reveal the nature of God and his desire for relationship with humanity, then I'm not stumbling over stuff about how long a day is because it's irrelevant. It's not why the it's not why scripture was written. Mm -hmm. It wasn't written as a science book. It wasn't written as a medicine book. It wasn't written as a math book. It was written to reveal the nature of God and his desire to restore his creation. So if, I, I think if you start there, some of these other, um, a lot of issues probably kind of fade. Not as like they're not important, but they probably fall into a certain degree of relevancy. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and our job is to be able to continue to be in fellowship with people who disagree on that mm -hmm. and work together with them, even in spite of that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I don't think that that's where we're currently at. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that, uh, it's a table breaking, uh, difference. If you think that, if you think God created the earth and six times 24 hours, I'm not, I'm still gonna, and I happen to not believe that then that's, I mean, that's not an issue to, to divide over. It's people have right. divided over it Yeah, for sure. And the reason you probably know this Leanne, but the reason is because that people feel like, boy, if you, if you let that go, it's right. a slippery slope. The dominoes exactly. are falling. Right. right. And pretty soon nothing means anything anymore. And then that takes me back to the ancient church. And you go, look how these folks interpreted scripture. Let's let them be our guides. Nobody's arguing about certain things in the first 10 centuries that we're arguing about now. Right. So right. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to read the, the early fathers or specifically um, the confessions. Um, Augustine. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I think I covered everything I was hoping that we'd be able to cover in one hour. And we did in 53 seconds or three, 53 minutes. Uh, tell us about your research project that you were working on 
or a grant proposal. What was it? Okay. Uh, just a month or two ago. Um, yeah, I'm doing this research project on the first of the three Benedictine vows, which is the vow oh. of stability. And um, so that's what that's what funded the trip to Italy, the time at the monastery. Um, and I'm almost done with a, a, a written piece that I hope will be helpful to somebody. But it's essentially trying to apply, uh, recognize the value of stability and apply that as a way forward for the church today. So stability is this vow that, ben, that monks take uh, to, to be in the same place, obeying the same rule or way of life for their whole life. And um, it was written and it was created as the first vow of Benedictine communities to address this rampant consumerism. These monks that would come, join a monastery for a few days, receive all of the hospitality that you would give to Christ, because that's how you're welcomed in a monastery. If you visit, you're welcomed as though you are Christ. And so they would receive this unbelievable hospitality for four or five days. And then as soon as they were asked to serve in the kitchen, they would see you later and they'd go to the next monastery. So this is clearly eroding the integrity of Christian community. Kind of sounds like the church in Northern California, where folks are just skipping around every couple of years and going to different places. It, it mm -hmm. erodes the whole thing. It, it, it takes away the integrity of the whole community. So and that convicts me right there. The, uh, well, it doesn't have, there's good reasons to move, but there's also a massive trend towards just, there's a better deal. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we treat the church, not like a community. We treat it like a commodity, like we treat everything else. And sadly it's, it's neutering our witness to the culture. The message of scripture is go, go into all the world. But I would argue that it is, but first stay, first stay, because in staying, you develop the value, you establish the conviction, and you learn the practices that enable you to have something meaningful to give. You don't have anything to teach me about marriage if you've switched up six or seven times. I'm looking at a marriage of 25 years of stability here. Your staying is actually the reason you have something to give as you go. It's not wandering around anymore for you. You could be sent into a situation with some real wisdom. Your words could help, not hurt. Because you've stayed, right? Because of this mm -hmm. commitment to persevering and, and maintaining a stable conviction. So that's what I'm working on right now. And hopefully can uh, figure out a way to apply it in a, in a modern context where it's not a very sexy idea. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. I feel like that's been something I've had a, an appreciation for without ever putting a finger on it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we, that's can, common, Mark. I think people back recognize hometown, that and go, yeah. Starting a business mm -hmm. and staying with it. Yes. Staying in the same home, same neighborhood. Clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, having my children attend the same schools, mm -hmm. same school system. Yep. Uh, it, it's been a principle that's been there for me. And I never even, I didn't know that was a Benedictine principle. Well, yeah, yeah, I think Benedict articulates it initially. He's given credit for, this is what makes his vows different than other monastic vow sets. Um, and it has characterized the Western monasticism and even our church has been, you know, generations down the line. Um, but isn't it interesting that you resonate with that as a value? You recognize the weight and the significance that comes. There are no shortcuts to this. <laughs> There's no shortcuts to being married 25 years. Mm -hmm. Like you just got to be married 25 years. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating. 
you're living it out in different contexts, right? With your business and otherwise. And, um, if our boy, if our, if our Christian communities and if, if people like me who lead them could actually be enabled to articulate the value of stability as opposed to consumerism and always new, always better, always upgrade. I feel like the church would be more powerful in the culture. We would have something to say instead of just being kind of a small B baptized version of the culture. Well, come to our car show. It's the same as everybody else's car show, right? Come to our party. They're the same as everybody else's parties. You have nothing new to say because you're not different. Uh, there's a degree to which I think we're called to be different. There's probably several degrees to which we're called to be different, but one of them I think has to do with this, um, this value of, of stability. And how will our listeners be able to consume this material once it's completed? Yeah, that's a good question. It depends on if anyone wants to uh, produce it. <laughs> I had somebody tell me there's that's that's not interesting to me, uh, and that's probably a pretty going to be a pretty common response. But um, you know, I've been teaching about it a bit, um, so I did a series of teachings called the Wisdom of Stability in uh, the fall of 2018. Um, EmmausCommunity.org is our website. Those teachings are there in our sermon archive. Our podcast on uh, iTunes or wherever you find podcasts is just our sermon um, recordings, EmmausCommunity.org. So if they're searching just Emmaus Community, they'll look in iTunes, they can Google Play, mm -hmm. they should be able to yeah, find it. Yeah, and they can look up the Wisdom of Stability, which okay. was the, uh, the name of that series. And hopefully I can figure out ways to make it uh, accessible. And, and probably in the future, there'll be some kind of a link somewhere on the website at EmmausCommunity.org. Good idea. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, do you have other books or anything that you've written? That I've written a few little things that we've mm -hmm. just self-published. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is fine. And it's worked for us to mm -hmm. get to the audience that we're trying to reach. But we did a book on uh, rites of passage for preteens called Waymarking. Um, it's, a, it's a book written for parents on how to identify or how to articulate, define adulthood and then lead their kids into it. And, uh, and then I did a, a book called uh, Kingdom Come, which was on seven ways that the resurrection makes a difference here and now. Yeah. It, again, those would be on EmmausCommunity.org. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Under the resources tab. Good. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you Thank so you much, Nathan. It's fun to talk to you both. Yeah. Thank you. Hope this was helpful. So we hope to do it again with more material in the future. Right on. Thanks. All right. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Wow. That was really good, that time with Nathan. I really, really, it was like therapy for me to to hear him, his uh, way of remembering uh, when we grew up and, and to realize a lot of what I bring to my uh, memory of growing up was not necessarily the leadership in the church or the official stand of the church. And I've said this before, right? but other influences on me, um, either within the church or, or family itself. And, and people around us even to this day. So, but Leanne, what was your experience with? I, I enjoyed the interview very much. It's, it's good, refreshing to hear um, how, how Nathan really integrates um, his, the faith that he grew up with, with um, kind of the ancient future church and, and brings it together beautifully in his, in his current position. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, I, I realized that we don't really put real closings on to tell people how they can connect with Changing Faith. 
And of course, obviously, they can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever they get podcasts. But we also have a website, changingfaith.com. That's pretty easy to find if you're looking for something about changing faith. And then in addition to that, we also have the Facebook page, which is kind of interesting because it's not called Changing Faith. It's The Facebook page is called, I believe it's, is it First Church First non-denominational church of the relatively elect, is that it? I believe so. So search for Facebook and and like or follow First Non-Denominational Church of the Relatively Elect. I'm pretty sure that's the title of it. And you'll see a picture of a service that we attended at the Hollywood Bowl once. (laughs) That's not actually the real first church of first non-denominational church of the relatively elect. That's just a, a picture I took. But it, it's really meant to be more of a joke than a, a serious uh, website. But it does carry announcements regarding the uh, Changing Faith podcast and what we do here. And you can comment there. We'd love to meet uh, our listeners because all we know is uh, numbers on a download record that we get through the Internet. We don't know who you are. We don't know what you're thinking. Please comment on the Facebook page so that we can hear something from you. Right. You can also find me. Um, I have a very sporadically written blog. I'm trying to become a little more um, consistent with my writing in my blog. But I started it a few years ago, I think about the time that we started this podcast. And I've we've been about as consistent with the podcast as I have been with my blog. Um, but it is called Blame It on Balaam. Um, referring to the donkey um, and I believe judges so blame it on Balaam and that's a WordPress blog if you were interested in that yeah thanks thank you for mentioning that Liam until next time we're Mark and Liam